0: Welcome to
1: Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.
2: Hello everyone, this is Ben Eno welcoming you to the 707th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on Owen twelve forty Radio as we broadcast live from the 2017 Exeter UFO Festival here in Exeter, New Hampshire and the historic Exeter Town Hall.
3: Many thanks to the Exeter Area Kiwanis Club, sponsors of the great annual event that we have here, which benefits local children's charities. The UFO Festival continues today here in downtown Exeter, so if you're within reach, please come by and meet the speakers uh, you're about to hear and help support this great event. Okay, our, um, our panelists today include legendary UFO researchers, speakers, and authors, Richard Dolan, Kathleen Martin, Peter Robbins, Travis Walton, Denise Stoner, Stephen mather Lee's, Carolyn LaRocque, and the great folks from Seacoast Saucers of New England, Chuck Credo. Hey, didn't Chuck do a great job last night at the uh, meet, meet the Speakers event? Yeah. Okay. Mike Stevens, uh, Valerie LaFazio-Roy, and Andrew Kitt. Did I miss anyone? Good. Okay. So, let's uh, begin our questions. Okay. All right. Okay. So, uh, because we only have one hour, uh, we won't be able to do phone calls today, but many listeners have sent questions, and we will, of course, take audience questions beginning right now. And here's our first uh First Contributor.
4: Good afternoon. There's 11 people on the panel, and um, I appreciate you all putting your time and effort into this great mystery, wherever it leads. I'd like to know, uh, this is just an opinion, do you, anybody have an opinion something is near happening that is going to be a world-changing event? Does anyone have, this is more of an emotional, intuitive question, but if any of you out of the 11 have a sense of that, I'd like you to share it with us, that there's some kind of um, event uh, in the near future that may uh, affect us all here on Earth.
3: Okay, thank you. Okay, we'll begin with Travis Walton.
5: Well, I'm certainly hearing a lot of talk, uh, chatter out there about people thinking that something's imminent. And, you know, in discussions last night uh, with the meet the speakers thing, uh, it kind of uh, uh, touched on that sort of thing is what could what could break this wide open? What could, uh, you know, make for the big paradigm shift, you know, the... Uh, The thing that really uh, gets, uh, you know, gets a message out there. And uh, I I, uh, mentioned the term going viral, you know, that there's an event that could happen at any moment, you know, that something could just catch on with the public and catch hold in ways that you can't predict or explain.
3: Okay, uh, thank you, Travis. Anyone else on the panel? Stephen May the Lees.
5: Hi. Um,
6: unfortunately, we've been hearing that something is about to happen for quite a long time now. And it's frustrating. Uh, it keeps, well, next year or maybe next the year after, but it's happening. And, of course, 2012 was when it was all going to happen, right? And that's, what, five and a half years ago now. So um, I really think it's up to us. Um, spread the, world around, the word around and uh, get involved. It's not, nobody's going to do it for us. I think we would all
7: like that to happen,
6: but it's up to us. Okay,
7: Andrew Kitt. It's nice to think about paradigm shifts as if they're going to happen all at once. Uh, probably what's going to happen is as viewpoints change, it'll happen progressively, and you'll look back, and realize that the paradigm has shifted, but to expect something to to just suddenly inundate the environment and all of a sudden everybody's thinking differently is kind of unrealistic. It's it, it, in all likelihood it's going to be a, a, a perspective looking back that'll make us realize that it happened, than something suddenly happening.
8: Uh, very quickly, uh, this is Richard Dolan. Um, Not a fan of people who make predictions. Uh, I think there are people out in our field who make predictions all the time, and almost every one of them are always wrong. So when you hear predictions based on intuition or inside sources that are undisclosed, I would say stop your ears and walk away is your best bet, seriously. Um, Having said that, you can look at some trends, very easy to see, Um, just politically, if nothing else. In the United States, we're seeing a fracturing of the social fabric, or a tearing of the social fabric between left and right. Social networks are amplifying this, and this is uh, really increasingly becoming more and more dangerous. And um, it only will take one economic crash to really create some big problems. Um, That's my personal fear. And if you really want uh, an intuitive response, that would probably be mine. But I don't know when that would ever possibly happen. Hopefully not.
3: Uh, Any other speakers wish to contribute to that question? Okay, well, let's go to a speaker, uh, to a listener question. Uh, Ben, why don't you take that one? uh, Well, that would be nice. Yeah, we are.
2: So this question comes from Jennifer in uh, Richmond, Kentucky, and it's directed to anyone on the panel, really. So is there any real evidence that aliens have underground bases on Earth and uh, that they are working with the government? Also, what if they are working with more than one government that has different interests?
1: All right, going over to Peter Robbins. Several decades ago, when I first heard uh, the term secret underground base associated with the subject of UFOs, I almost laughed in its face. It seemed so science fictiony, so silly, so hyper, you know, uh, conspiratorial and silly. Well, that was before I began to study the history of militaries in the 20th century, became involved in research on Britain's best known case and learned and had it confirmed repeatedly that classified underground facilities exist all over the world, in some cases to a degree that boggles the imagination, not just for military or government security for housing key people in time of cataclysm or national chaos, but also for multinational corporations, scientific installations, uh, laboratories working with secured or dangerous materials. Um, There's a book that um, Richard Dolan publishes by uh, Dr. David Sauter, uh, Secret Underground Bases, um, and a follow-up book to that. Uh, Dr. Sauter's work was very enlightening. Um, We also have to remember that there are huge, huge natural caverns. Anybody that's ever visited Carlsbad Cavern or uh, cave complexes up here in New Hampshire or the area in New England knows um, some of these spaces are mind-boggling in terms of how large they are. As to the legend the mythology uh, part of the oral tradition of um, the history of of ufos and other intelligences yes as long as there's been interest in the subject there's been speculation uh, around them having installations below us underneath the bases underneath the earth um, and at the same time working with uh human entities government military etc uh for me Personally, the short answer is I don't know. Um, I guess nothing is out of the question. I I know that I, I find myself objecting when people will come up to me and seriously be to uh, talk about the Eisenhower Treaty with the aliens of 1954, and my thought is to grab them by the shoulders and shake them and say, "Get a life," as Bud Hopkins used to say. The aliens don't have to sign treaties with anybody; they can do what they want. I don't know. Um, but it's not out of the question. But underground bases and installations in the service of secrecy, military development, scientific development, housing, people considered important to the running of the world, absolute reality, no question about it.
2: Anyone else on the panel want to tackle the question? No? Well, back to Paul.
3: Okay. Thank you, Ben. As I say, if anyone wants to ask a question from the audience, please just walk up to the mic. And we have a young lady uh, just about to do so. Please state your question.
9: Um, this is a question for the whole panel. Um, does anybody have any insights into whether this slew of celebrity deaths in 2016 have any connection to disclosure or ET involvement?
3: Anyone on the panel? No one? Hmm. See, they're all involved with the CIA. That's pretty- you want to try? it? Okay. Okay. Richard Dolan.
8: Uh, I, that's an interesting question, and I don't have an answer to that. But uh, I would just encourage anyone who wants to study uh, the, the depths of how Hollywood go, how far Hollywood goes into uh, the secret world. There, there are no shortage of Hollywood insiders, YouTube uh, people going on YouTube. Form, I mean, of every segment of the entertainment industry, who have talked in detail about the intense level of control that exists over Hollywood celebrities. In particular, uh, the music industry seems to be the worst. Uh, Agenda-driven, and you hear like Illuminati, Mind Control Project, Monarch, it's all out there. Uh, There's a lot of interesting stuff to go to. I would just encourage people to check out the website Vigilant Citizen. Uh, Some people may know it. It's, uh, I think, one of the most uh, in-depth, smart analyses of Hollywood that's out there. But uh, as far as the deaths, I I couldn't say.
3: Uh, Anyone else on the panel? No one else. Okay, go ahead, sir.
4: So back to Mr. Robbins on treaties. So you have a, a people that can come and go as they please. What do we have to offer? Is anybody in the panel? I have a I have a suggestion afterwards. What would we have to offer them in exchange for a treaty? It's got to be a two way deal. What do we have that they want or need or could use? Anybody have an idea? I got one afterwards.
3: Okay, we'll start with Peter Robbins if
4: they, these
1: other intelligence I've never been terribly comfortable with the word aliens um, are as technologically advanced as they seem to be 10,000, 10 million years, choose your number if they have this history of coming and going with impunity, if they can literally take whatever they want, including human beings um, that's a challenging question. I don't know. Um, there might be some intellectual you know, can we meet with you and discuss or exchange ideas um, but as is the case in world history the strong take what they want the weak are subjugated and history is written by the winners so I, I can't think of an entity that, you know, we they need to negotiate with us about offhand. I may be off
3: Okay. What uh, We're going to do um did I give my answer, what I think they're going to give? Oh, okay, deals? well, well we're, we're going to give it to Richard Dolan.
8: Okay. I don't want to keep talking, but um, <laughs> there's a couple of reasons why there would be. Uh, first of all, they might be interested in our genetics. We're very interesting genetically. There's a lot of biological interests on planet Earth. Um, in terms of, you know, what, what could they, we possibly do to stop them, I, I would actually have a perspective on it. I mean, we probably couldn't take them in a street fight, but we could be annoying. Uh, there's a lot of us on the planet. We do have weapons. Um, it might not be in their interest to have us get all worked up over them being here publicly. So there could be a lot of reasons that they would want us to keep things on the DL. So they would actually want to work things out with us, at least in theory. Uh, there would be a reason for them to kind of work things out with the ruling elites of, uh, of the planet. This only is speculate. No one knows. Right? No one really knows. The whole idea of a treaty, uh, people speculate. There's not, there's not proof of any of this. The only thing that there's proof of is that there's an actual UFO phenomenon for real. There's proof that our militaries can't deal with these, these objects. There's proof that it exhibits great levels of concern that doesn't seem to be under our control. That's, that you can take that to the bank. Beyond that, you've got rumors, leaks, and, you know, frankly, we just don't know.
3: Okay. Thank you, Richard. Anyone else on the panel care to answer the question? Stephen May, Lee's.
6: Yeah, I, I think there's enough ETs visiting us that at least some of them, hopefully most of them, are in fact responsible and would be prepared to ask permission to, to interact with us in various ways. Um, there's probably some bad guys, or almost certainly some bad guys that are just going to take what they want. What I can't believe is that anybody would travel a hundred light years to cut up cows. Or cats, or pigs, or you know, that doesn't make sense. And I, I'm an engineer, and stuff has to make sense. Otherwise, I won't, I won't buy
4: it.
3: Thank you, Stephen. Anyone else uh, on the panel care to tackle the question?
4: So, I pretty much, Mr. Doane's statement. I think it, with the, the ET, the elites, have agreed. Give us some technology, and we'll control the herd. We'll be the security guards and run the media and keep everything on the down low. So, I think. Okay,
3: well, thank you. Thank you. Next questioner, please.
0: Uh, My name is Alex. I'm from Rochester, New Hampshire, and thank you all for being present here. Um, I'll try to keep this very brief. Uh, I watched a frontline documentary on public television in September of 2016. That's when the original program aired, September. I think it might have been September 27th. I'm not sure. It's a frontline documentary about uh, the Obama administration, and um, it, it had a video footage of President Obama uh, at the White House Correspondence Dinner in 2011, addressing a very large audience. And President Obama was standing on the stage, and he was making fun of Donald Trump, who at that time had not, had not yet officially declared his candidacy for president. And he was roasting Donald Trump publicly with Donald Trump in the audience, making fun of Donald Trump for having um, made a big deal over the birther issue. And one of the things he used to ridicule Donald Trump was Roswell. And I'm not aware if anybody in the UFO community is aware of this incident where at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, uh, I believe it was April 2011, if I'm not mis- mistaken, Obama made a number of jokes, and one of the jokes he said on stage was, what really happened in Roswell? And after asking that question publicly, you know, the whole audience laughed. And this was in the context of other jokes that he was putting forth to make fun of and belittle and demean Donald Trump. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Thank you.
3: Okay, anyone um, here to tackle that? Charles uh, Credo from Seacoast Saucers. I I think I
10: know exactly the program that you're referring to. In fact, if I remember correctly, Seth Meyer, formerly of Saturday Night Live, was the writer for these press conferences that you're referring to. In fact, he wrote a lot of the jokes for these press conferences in the Obama administration. So um, when you reference that, you have to remember that uh, they hire a professional comedian to go on and help write some of these skits and some of these jokes. And you're absolutely right. At that time uh there were a lot of jokes made and i think your question really comes down to well what do we think about that um, peter robbins gave a very good presentation today about uh the history of how we have almost in many ways postmodernized the uh ufo through different media and uh this is just another example of how when we ridicule or make jokes or find ways uh to in, you know lighten up what is, to many people, a very serious situation, it actually downplays the serious trauma that people go through. So uh, personally, I feel as though we need to start taking this subject a lot more seriously, but we also need to realize that uh, the issue that you're talking about, you had a professional Saturday Night Live uh, skit writer helping the Obama administration write some of these things as well. So taken into context.
2: Anyone else on the panel want to tackle it? All right, next question.
9: Um, Does anybody have any theories on maybe empathy? Do any of these aliens show it? Because everything I've always heard, like even from my dad, it doesn't seem like they're getting what we're feeling. They're getting what we're feeling, empathy. Do aliens feel empathy? Denise Stoner.
11: As an experiencer myself they came across to me as serious scientists and I had one that I called the doctor and he did show some emotion he was very curious as to how I was reacting my emotions as to why he was doing what he was doing to me um, they are very restrained in demonstrating any emotions themselves but most humans that I've spoken to that experience similar uh, to mine Um, come back with a great degree of empathy more so than they had so it has an effect on humans that way and I think that we need to have that so we're coming back with more empathy we're able to sympathize with other humans more so than we could before and I think this is good so whether or not they have it it doesn't really matter to me um, I was not harmed. They always returned me. I'm back every single time. Uh, I would not say stop it. So as scientists, that I, that's what I believe they are. They're doing a project um, for a reason. I don't know what it is. But I'm glad that I have more empathy myself towards humans. Do you think that's what they're looking for?
9: Are trying to figure to, out? Are they trying to figure out? that why we have empathy and they don't.
11: I have wondered whether or not they're trying to fix it to a certain degree within themselves. I don't know for sure, but perhaps.
2: Uh, Kathleen Martin.
11: One of the questions
9: that Free asked on its questionnaire with 3,000 participants was... Uh, have the ETs shown uh, emotions, uh, emotional expression toward you. And uh, the majority, and I don't recall the statistic right now, I had it yesterday on my PowerPoint. It was, I believe, about 75% stated that they uh, did observe an emotional response from these extraterrestrials. Uh, with regard to being empathetic, I want to use the word empathic, where they can sense your feelings. They can uh, feel your feelings. And uh, many of the individuals who have completed MUFON's experience or survey, which uh, is ongoing. We have 500 respondents. We've closed the first part of the survey. It's a three-part uh, study that we're doing. And the majority uh, stated that they felt uh, em- that the ETs were empathic. And as Denise stated, uh, also the majority of experiencers who completed the survey stated that they believed they had become more empathic. So when I ask people why they think that has occurred, Many state that they feel that the the ETs are very concerned about human behavior. And if we all become empathic, then we will be different. We'll live in a different kind of society. We won't hurt others because we will feel that pain ourselves. So that is what I've been able to gather from the, the surveys and from speaking with experiencers
2: Andy Kidd would like to tackle this as well.
7: I just want to add that uh, science works best when it is objective, and empathy tends to lead to bias. So if they're here to study us, then you can guarantee they would minimize their empathic relations with us. So it might just be an issue of need. And if they are, don't appear to be empathic, that's because it's not objective to do so.
2: Anyone else like to tackle the question? No, all set. Please step up to the mic.
12: I, I suppose my question is more like broad in that, like, um, the Book of Enoch, like uh, the Vedas from Hinduism and things. Um, there's been like a long history of people being interested in aliens, and it showing up over and over again. And like after the fact of you, like your experiences, what you've understood, what you've picked up on. Do you think there's any validation to all of those things, which I assume most of you would have some type of like strong opinion on, is that like these occurrences through history have been like um, early states of like just man like having that interaction and validating it? And if you have any opinion through history, you know, in terms of like spiritually, I guess like I'm not super spiritual myself, but um, I like to read, so. Um, for me to see that and stuff, it's somewhat of a validation that something's occurred prior to us, long before us. It's always been here. It's been well before us. And I suppose that's my question. I guess if anybody has an opinion on it or
2: anyone on the panel. All right, well, give it give it over to my my wonderful co-host Paul Eno. Oh.
3: Uh- Thank you, Ben. Uh, no, just as one who has a seminary education, that has come up many times in, uh, in our own books, et cetera. There seems to be a trend through ancient documents, especially if you read them in the original languages, mm-hmm. where our remote ancestors encountered something they believed to be supernatural beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of oddities in the record. For example, uh, and, and this, this goes back to the most ancient cultures we know: the Andaman and, and Nicobar Islanders of the Indian Ocean, the um, the San and Khoisan Bushmen of North Africa, whose DNA goes back something like 150,000 years, and whose tradition isn't much younger than that. And they will tell you that originally there were there was essentially one god, with, with like a male, a female and a child was usually the human race. There are all kinds of um, folklore implications to that. But uh, there is a pattern of more recent events that are reflected in documents such as Genesis, if you read it in Hebrew, Uh, also the Atrahasis of the Akkadians, ancient civilization most people never heard of, or the Karsag epics of the Sumerians. The whole narrative is that you had some sort of agricultural colony founded by someone. If you want to be really conservative, you could say maybe the Indo-Europeans, but because they weren't flying around as did Enoch, at least you know in strange craft looking down upon uh, the what probably the Rift Valley, which was volcanic at the time, uh, with the Anunnaki and all all this business. We don't have time to talk about, but it can't all be coincidence. Something happened, and it was couched in the terms uh, of folklore and myth. And what are folklore and myth? They're the vessels of the memory of the human race. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, definitely, yes, we can't really pin it down. But we're we're rediscovering things that our remote ancestors really, really knew.
12: So, so. I, I want to say one thing to that: is that has that interaction that you've experienced affected you after the fact? Like to look back at like. Ancient people and seeing like, oh wow, I-, I wasn't crazy, or you know, there isn't strange things occurring. It's that some that there was some substance there, you know, and okay. it's verification, I guess, is what I'm saying.
3: Well, thank you. Uh, yeah. Right,
12: anyone care to respond to uh, an experiences point of view, Travis?
3: Certainly, a good one to respond to that
5: question. <coughs> well, y- um, unique to the uh, Arizona where I-, I come from is uh, evidence of ancient contact with the, with the native peoples um, there are rock carvings petroglyphs in in the canyon walls near where i live uh depicting scenes of a of a disc a flying disc uh with a man with a bow aiming an arrow at it and uh, these things you know uh, can be authenticated because Uh, When the rocks are carved, it forms a a patina over hundreds of years that, uh, you know, takes a great deal of time to form. So I thought that was uh, interesting. Uh, I also gave a talk in Gallup, New Mexico, to uh, an audience of uh, nearly a 1,000 Native Americans, and um, I got a lot of feedback from them about things that occur out there on the reservation. That, uh, they, you know, in the past haven't been willing to talk, uh, to outsiders about, but, uh, they, they really opened up to me, you know, because, uh, uh my experience and because, um, um, I was actually raised with five, uh, Native American, uh, foster brothers and sisters. So, uh, it was, it was fascinating to hear uh, These stories, like this one guy had uh, a a grandmother who had woven a blanket, uh, you know, the Navajo blankets are very famous, uh, 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 depicting a scene of uh, an encounter with the uh, Sky people. So it goes way back before there were Europeans or any uh, stories that we might have carried to them. Anyone else want to give it a shot?
2: Already, Miss Larock.
11: Just a quick statement. When I lived in Pennsylvania, we used to um, shop at a uh, Native American-owned store called Coyote Trails, and the, I became pretty close friends with the owners, and they had. We'd been talking about UFO subjects for a while, and they told me of a prophecy, and I can't remember from which tribe it was, but it was a tribe in Pennsylvania, and their prophecy was that when the clouds crisscross the sky like spider webs, the sky gods will return. And they've got a lot more to it than that. And I always found that fascinating. And, and that was before I was really into and noticing the chemtrails and all that. And I just thought when I started noticing that they were like spider webs in the sky, I thought that was pretty interesting. And I just thought I'd share that on that.
2: Hmm. That's pretty interesting. Anyone else want to tackle that before we get to the next question? No? Okay.
11: Hi, my name's Jenna. I'm from Exeter, and um, it's kind of hard for me to, like, talk about, but um, I see orbs in the sky almost on a nightly basis right here in Exeter, almost anywhere that I go, and they stop, they change direction, they move really fast, they move really slow, and sometimes when I point them out to people, sometimes others will see them, but for the most part, other people do not. And I just didn't know if maybe I'm just crazy and seeing things or if that's actually real and possibly UFO-related. But I just didn't know, if, like, if there's a reason why some people can see these things and some can't because I'm pretty sane for the most part, I would say. So,
1: Peter Robbins. Uh, this is a question that fascinates me and one I'd actually – rather than hearing myself give my part of the answer here, Kathy and or Denise speak about it. Um, Over the years that I worked as the assistant to a man named Bud Hopkins, who pioneered a lot of the original research into the abduction phenomena, uh, I had the privilege of literally being at his shoulder like a fly on the wall, working with hundreds, not a hundred but five, six, seven hundred people coming and going over those years. And at certain points, data points would build up in our research. And at certain moments, you'd see, my gosh, there's a preponderance of evidence here that X equals Y or whatever. And at one point, essentially an informal statistic revealed itself, which was there was no question in our mind that they, for lack of a more descriptive term, seem to be able to um, selectively uh, either appear to certain people but not to others. Whether it was a crowd scene or a few, two persons, one would perceive the phenomena, be it a being, a craft, something that we might call an orb or variation of, and the other person or the other people could not. Was this a function of something uh, physiological or psychological about that person or some special gift or lack of same? Was it something that they could turn on or off uh, selectively? Um, I remember one case in particular of a uh, person being on a crowded beach on a beautiful summer day in Australia, uh, a person with a history of abduction, and uh, looking up, seeing a fully articulated disc-shaped craft, taking photos, trying to call other people's attention to it. No one saw it. No one seemed to respond to them. And the next thing they knew, they were on it and then returned. But um, that's as good as I can get. (laughs)
2: Already passing... Oh, yeah, well, there, there were many people who were asking, uh, you know, let's just go in a line. <laughs> so Denise Stoner first.
11: I want to respond to that just a little bit, because when I speak this afternoon, I'm going to show a picture of an orb that I took. I saw it first. It also made a sound, and it followed us down a road. So that's going to be shown and described when I talk this afternoon.
3: All right. Thank you, Denise. Uh, Valerie LaFazza-Roy.
6: So um, my colleagues were urging me to to speak up to you because – so we work with the KRI Center just up the road here in Stratum, and our number one rule when we have an event is you cannot start a a sentence with, this might sound weird, but – (laughs) Right, (laughs) Because we don't want people to come in and feel like they're going to be judged. And nine times out of ten, people walk through our doors and they have these experiences and they feel strange and they feel out of place and they tell their story and other people in the room say, hey, I had that story too. I've had that experience. So if you're looking to connect with people who see these things, I highly encourage you to, to, you know, get in touch with us and you can find some common ground with other people. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Valerie. Okay, next question, please.
10: Hi, this is Michael from Belmont, Mass. Uh, I've been running a UFO meetup in Watertown. And uh, one of the questions that came up recently relates to what we started our hour with just just a a bit ago, which is how can we think – of innovative um, new platforms and innovative um, ideas, clever ideas to get the message out about disclosure, perhaps YouTube videos and the like. It reminds me of what we talked about last night a little bit. But does anyone have any new
3: brainstorm like ideas? Anyone on the panel care to tackle that? Uh, Okay. Kathy Martin?
9: I've been saying this for a while, but I think that disclosure is going to come from the bottom up. And I think that everyone in this audience has learned some information over the weekend from people who are credible researchers. You've heard statistical information. You've probably observed evidence. And uh, I think that the best thing for each of us to do is to tell our families, to tell our friends, and ask them to pass that evidence on, that information, on to others. I don't think that it's ever going to come from the top down unless they're forced to do it. And I can't imagine that there would be a treaty agreed to by these non-human entities and all of the governments of this world. That's my opinion.
3: Thank you, Kathy. Okay, uh, next questioner, please. <laughs> um, Richard. What's, what's, oh, I'm so, I beg your pardon. I'm sorry, there's one more answer. Sorry about that, Richard. Uh,
8: I want to answer the previous question first, because I, I wanted to jump in on that, um, uh, relating to the orbs, and then I actually have something to say on the social. Uh, As far as the orbs, uh, my own um, investigations, I've encountered now a number, done a lot of interviews with people who have had uh, very bizarre sightings of things that do seem to uh, appear and not appear. They phase in, they phase out. I don't know how to explain this scientifically, but I do think that this is a real thing. Uh, In in terms of the orbs, um, you know, we always have to be very critical of our own perception. So we have to be, I'm not saying this is the case with you, but... um, there are always possibilities of what we're, that we're misidentifying what we think we're seeing in the night sky, including our own vision, including optical effects and so forth. That's a real phenomenon. And having said that, you may be seeing real orbs. Um, I've encountered a lot of orb stories that are totally credible, in my opinion. So I think that there is such a phenomenon, and, and you should uh, talk to some of the local folks here who, who really can help you with that. Relating to the social media um, Uh, There's two ways I look at it. this, is the medium and the message, okay? So uh, in terms of how we get the message across, we've got to be very clear, very factual, and we have to find a way that this resonates emotionally with people. Why do UFOs matter? It's really not hard to understand. They're important, they're denied, and they mean something very, very big. I think uh, our messages when we talk about this should be to the point, no, I'm really not a big fan of chit chat. I'm not a fan of of um, dancing around. So we should have like quick. If you do YouTube, five minute, ten minute, get in, get out. Um, and we should be uh, brave, factually based, and and not be afraid to talk to our social of um, our our network of friends. Um, our example of courage influences other people, and they in turn will influence others as well. And that's that's how it works. And we. Absolutely can do that by being innovative. YouTube, Facebook, social media, webpages, um, it's all there. Andy
2: Kit would like to tackle this as well.
7: Uh, and like Richard, uh, addressing the previous speaker, the, the orb question is something that can be tested empirically. And, in fact, the KRI Center, I welcome you to talk to me afterwards, and we can probably look at this and see exactly what you are experiencing. Regarding the social media, the big concern with social media is creating a pop culture phenomenon rather than a phenomena of concern. We have an issue here that affects everybody, and we need to be concerned about it, not just do a pop culture glorification of it. And that's something that you need to think about as you get the word out is, are we worried about this or should we just be, you know, wow, check out the new rock star alien thing.
6: Stephen Matherly Hi, I wanted to say a little more also about the, um, the the phenomenon of some people seeing things and some not. And I've experienced that both ways. I have seen things that other people around me didn't see, and they've seen things that I didn't see. And it's highly subjective, this thing, and I think it has a, a very large spiritual content. It's not all scientific, um, and that perhaps is because it's a science that we haven't figured out yet. On some level it is, but for the time being it's it's subjective. And um, that's that's.
2: Peter Robbins. Uh,
1: Following up extremely uh, briefly on on Kathleen's insightful thoughts of not being afraid to speak out to friends, office colleagues, family, be um, emboldened by something that I've observed, I guess, over the last 10 years, Um, and it involves folks primarily beginning in their 40s, and certainly well through their 70s and older. Uh, this was not the case that I observed in traveling around the country, speaking to many people, conferences, lectures, radio shows, etc. 10 years ago, even half a dozen years ago, but now I see it all the time. Every year, more and more people care less and less what other people think about what they think about the subject that we're here to study. Profound thoughts. Anyone else?
2: No? Next question.
4: Okay, hey, I want to go back in time to Kathy Martin with uh, Bonnie and Betty Hill. Um, back in the 80s, there was um, a book by Shirley MacLaine that stimulated a lot of thought of channeling and UFOs, too, and it became a movie. It was a TV show, you know, her book, Out on a Limb, and then it became a made-for-TV movie, much like Bonnie and Betty Hill Interrupted Journey, a book which stimulated me at age 10 or so, to have, be interested in this, but in overall, like, did Betty, the idea they were a biracial couple, interested me too. But what do you have to say about how she changed her uh, philosophy of life? Did she really see them as benevolent? There were some issues about, you know, that the way she was treated and the way they took the book away from her uh, and uh, things. So I just like you to go back to way back to the 60s and tell us your, what. Betty Hill really, and why did they ever revisit her? And did she have a longing for that revisitation? So just fill in a little bit of that ancient history from the 60s, okay? Kathleen Martin.
9: I think that Betty's experience caused her to uh, view them in a number of different ways. Initially, she was terrified. She had never been so terrified in her entire life. Uh, she said that she thought she was going to die. She was so fearful when uh, they found themselves on uh, a back road, a dirt road. There were tall trees all around, and then there were these non-human entities standing in the road in front of her. She tried to escape. She wasn't able to. They intercepted her. Uh, they pointed something at her. She lost consciousness, but she regained consciousness as they were taking her down the path to the landed craft. Once she was on the craft, uh, she was still fearful. But after the needle was inserted into her navel, causing great pain uh, to her, One of the entities, the one that she called the leader and the one that we now think of is the individual who develops a relationship with the experiencer and sees that experiencer on on an ongoing basis throughout their lives. When this individual removed Betty's pain, she was very grateful and then the examiner went into the next room to examine Barney, and she struck up a conversation with him. In the end, she thought of him as being benevolent. It was her reaction to this highly unusual situation that she found herself in that caused her to initially be so fearful and think that they were negative. But in the end, she invited them to come back. She said that she knew of scientists, or she could find scientists, and she hoped that they would speak to uh, them. The leader who was taking her back to the car at that point said, I cannot say for certain whether or not we will be able to come back. We can find those that we want to find. And he apologized for uh, frightening Betty and Barney initially uh, they, he said that it would be better if they didn't remember that portion of their experience uh, and he thought that it would cause a great deal of confusion for them and it wouldn't be a good thing for them to remember and that's why they removed the, uh, like a tablet that she had uh, that she hoped to take with her as proof of the experience that she had. Uh, She really did feel, in a sense, that she had developed a relationship with these individuals. She felt they were astronauts from another planet. That's how she perceived them. And she, in the end, stated that she was happy that that had happened in her life. Uh, So she did go out. She tried to communicate with them, as part of an experiment uh, being done by a group of scientists. She attempted to vector the craft in. That was through a psychophysics experiment that was being conducted. And so she, in a sense, lost her fear. She thought of her experience as being positive. Yet, in the end, I do believe that she was Fearful that they might come into her home, I hope that answers your question.
3: Okay, thank you, Kathy. Our next questioner from the audience, please. Hi,
13: um, my name is Nick. Um, so we know humans have been able to record time for the past uh, roughly six thousand years, but thanks to religions and books such as the Bible, uh, humans now only acknowledge the past two thousand years. To that point, does anyone think there could have been some type of significant event 2,000 years ago or reason why we do not acknowledge that other 4,000 years of uh, intelligence?
3: Yes. um, Please repeat the first part of the
8: question.
13: where, that we've been able to record time for...
8: Recording time for 6,000 years, I got that. But what, what about the last 2,000 years? Uh,
13: thanks to religious books and such, we only acknowledge uh, the birth or resurrection of Christ at oh, 2,000 so years. so Christianity,
8: you're yes. talking about
13: that. Is there any uh, thought as to why we repress the first 4,000 years of the human's ability to record time?
8: I, I don't <laughs> I don't know about anybody else I've, I'm a I i am think a, probably a lot of people up here are very avid students of ancient history um, I mean my entire life I've studied uh, ancient Sumer and Egypt and uh, Greece and Rome and they're all pre-Christian so yeah. I'm, I'm not really sure I, I, I understand where you're going with that uh, just
13: uh, I don't really uh, just a thought as to why really that we only start from 2,000 years ago now as a well, well, well why counting. we
8: record our years—that's—that's—I yes. uh, um, get—I don't. There's probably other historians who might know this, but of course, uh, during the Roman Empire, um, but actually, I think it was after the fall of Rome, if I'm not mistaken, when Christianity sort of became the dominant, uh, you know, force in uh, in European civilization. When they redid the calendar, they, of course, started it from uh, from the time of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a case of history being written by the winners. Uh, I, I would imagine, that. and we we're just still in the result of that. Right. But um, I mean, for um, uh, people who study ancient history, I mean, I certainly think it's true that we are all interested in the pre-Christian um, written uh, history, and there's a lot of a lot of detailed histories that are written of that, of course. Well,
13: uh, well I guess I could reform the question as: uh, Does is there any links that anyone knows of? as to uh, extraterrestrial life
8: and religions? I'll, I'll quickly, and I'm sure that people have something to say. Thanks. Um, my take on it is that uh, there are lots of big holes in our ancient history, lots of them. Even in terms of archaeology, if you put everything into a into a room, it's, it's really a lot of our evidence is in some cases, minuscule, uh, but we're able to make good inferences out of things. And we, But there's a lot we don't know. And, um, you know, entire civilizations, in fact, in ancient times, have only some of them been discovered uh, comparatively recently. So we're still learning a lot. Um, in terms of the ancient astronaut or connection of ancient religions to other beings, this is always an interesting part of speculation, and um, we could probably go on endlessly about it. That's why they have the TV show Ancient Aliens and, and all of that. So there's a lot to look at. Uh, my personal favorite ancient uh, anomaly to look at, actually, I, and I cannot get enough of it, is uh, studying the ancient, uh, the Great Pyramid in Giza, which you look at mathematically and in terms of engineering and in every other way. is just unbelievably complex, and I don't, know, I don't have a good explanation for it in conventional terms at all. Uh, it 's off the charts, but there 's other things as well, so I would just say that there 's a, a great huge numbers of mysteries that we 're not explaining in our civilization and what does it mean? Does it mean that we had great knowledge that 's been lost? Uh, some ancient human civilization understood something esoterically or were we helped by others and um, we don 't know i don 't know
1: Peter Robbins. I see we're coming into the last few minutes of the broadcast. I'll uh, try to keep this concise. Um, it's such a huge topic. We could devote <clears throat> weekend after weekend to it. Um, all said and done, uh, I'm convinced beyond any reasonable doubt that genuine, um, call them extraterrestrial or interdimensional appearances, incursions, events in ancient times, Um were observed by human beings uh, without a context to reference them to, in pre-scientific mystical thinking, um, they probably mystified them and it became part of oral and written tradition. I think we see it come up regularly in the revered writings of all of the world's great religions. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, for anybody that's familiar with the Old Testament, I was brought up in in the Reformed Jewish tradition to understand that the Bible uh, is a collection of actual factual things that really happened to real people, recycling of earlier myths from other cultures, allegories, analogies, morality tales, and the like. I don't think there's anything blasphemous about that attitude. Um, Reading through these stories, I think one that jumps out for me indeed, um, is Ezekiel and I encourage all of you to read or reread it and in fact if you can get hold of several copies of the Old Testament compare the translations they're very close interesting little experiment out of the skies lo cometh a wheel within a wheel of the appearance of burnished beryllium it's metal it has eyes all about might be interpreted as windows an angel encased in burnished beryllium uh, comes out and interfaces with Ezekiel Um, It's in a metal suit. Its head has ceremonial animal heads on it. If you are preparing your technology to interface with an ancient civilization without freaking them the hell out any more than you're going to, you might want to think that through beforehand. I'm sure they studied the culture and appear in a manner, hopefully, that they might interpret, I'm thinking, of very nice other intelligences who might well want to impart Um, an ability to these ancients to evolve in a more civilized way, and on and on. The short answer to your question, though, is yes, I think ancient history in pictographs, in cave drawings, in ancient writings, in religious traditions, on the walls of medieval monasteries, we have plenty of evidence for incursions, visitations, and uh, appearances of other intelligences throughout human history and before.
3: Thank you, Peter. Uh, we only have a few minutes left. I'm afraid we will not have any more time for questions. Our apologies, but come back next year. Uh, we'll be here, I'm sure. Okay, we have three minutes left. We do have a few brief announcements, Ben, if you want to take that away. Uh, we already said we're not going to do a lot of announcements, but uh, we do remind listeners, however, uh, that they can find out more about our show, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, and there'll be lots of links to all our uh, guests uh, to panelists here and speakers. And you could also find over 720 free recorded shows from both ON 1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS radio, along with special shows and podcasts, at our website, BehindTheParanormal.com. So what do we have uh, coming up next week there, Ben?
2: Alrighty, so next Sunday, which would be September 10th, here on ON 1240, we'll welcome none other than Andrew Kitt, who is currently on the panel, and uh, he is of the KRI uh, Center of Consciousness Studies, and into a journey of electro-voice phenomena and other stretches of consciousness, which is a fascinating subject to me because of my audio engineering background.
3: Okay. Anybody who's got a job for Ben, let them know. Okay, uh, there is one announcement, too. Uh, coming up, we have a lot of events, Ben and I personally, and uh, Peter Robbins will be joining us as well at the Greater New England UFO Conference, Friday, Saturday, October 6th and 7th, uh, at the um, City Hall in Levinster, Massachusetts, not too far from here. Check it out, newenglandufo.com. It's uh, $10 for Friday night, which is Bigfoot night, and um, it's $25 for the Saturday program, and uh, it's going to be great. Nick Redford and Betty Andreessen, Peter, as we said, us, Bill Hall, Mark Antonio, Bigfoot Night Friday. So thank you all, uh, the audience especially. Thank you to our speakers. And uh, before we end the show, we want to give everybody a nice round of applause. Okay. And we do remind everyone that um, the uh, event continues today here at the Exeter Town Hall, the uh, UFO Festival. And uh, the authors will be in the book room, buy lots of books. And uh, there'll be more speakers coming up. And, again, thank you, everyone. And Ben is going to...
2: And thank you for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time. (laughs) Oh, we have 30 seconds left, so I was wrong. (laughs) Well, a little preemptive. But, once again, thank you to all of our great speakers.